I'm delighted to be joined on the fourth episode of a life curated by internationally renowned minimalist architect John Paulson. Born in Halifax and schooled at Eton, John spent time working for his family's textile business before leaving for Japan in his mid-twenties, spending the final year in Tokyo where he visited the studio of Shira Kuramata, who was to be a huge influence on his career. Inspired by the minimalist aesthetic he had witnessed and after a few pit stops around the world and an attempt at becoming a monk, upon his return to the UK, he enrolled at the Architectural Association School of Architecture, leaving in 1981 to set up his own practice. Although private houses have remained at the core of his practice, John's projects have been wide-ranging, including the Lake Crossing Bridge at Kew Gardens, hotels for Abbey Rosen, a flagship store for Calvin Klein, projects for Ian Schrager, Bruce Chatwin, Karl Lagerfeld, a Cistercian monastery in Bohemia, the Java Hotel in Israel, and in 2016, John designed the new Design Museum in London. Most recently, John also designed the Claridge's Art Space Gallery. A recipient of a long list of awards, including a CBE in 2019 for services to design and architecture, John has also been published several times, including a foray into cookbooks. John's latest book, Making Life Simpler, published by Fiden, was released last month. John is also an avid photographer. His photo has been exhibited at 180 The Strand in May 2018 as part of a Shade of Pale exhibition, the largest exhibition of photos per acreage ever exhibited. Recorded from John's office in King's Cross, my name is Nolan Brown. I'm an art advisor of the podcast. This is a life curated. John, firstly, thank you so much for joining me. Before we start, um, in my previous life at Tashin, I got completely obsessed with architecture and would immerse myself in all the books. So to be sitting here face to face with you is a huge, huge honor. Uh, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> any the any um, uh, nice things said, gratefully received. <laughs> good, good. Flattery. Uh, <laughs> um, so the early years, uh, what was your very first art memory? Well, Dad had a Matthew Smith who was a painter. Actually, he was born in Halifax, where, uh, the same place I was. And it was probably one of the only uh, original works of art that we had in the house because Dad loved Impressionists. So a lot of the pictures that were hung were actually um, copies. Um, but he had this one Matthew Smith, which was, I think, flowers. So it was, you know, he, he studied under Matisse. Oh, Matthew wow. Smith. And it's interesting because, I mean, not that I knew at the time, but he was born 100 years before me. So he was sort of a whole 100 years generation different. And what was the picture? It was, a, I think, from memory, it was a, a, a bowl of flowers. Nice. But, you know, very much after Matisse or Cezanne. It's interesting you mentioned that because I'm currently selling a Lowry and in my research, he was also inspired by an Impressionist painter, I forget his name at the moment, who actually taught at his college and he said he owes everything to this, this uh, particular artist. Well, he, he, uh, uh, Matthew Smith did spend time in Manchester. Oh, right, okay. So, um, but it's interesting that they were inspired by the, uh, the French Impressionists. Mm. What was the art scene like for you growing up? Did you go to many openings? I grew up in Halifax, so any sort of galleries tended to be in London. So by the time I, in my late teens, I was hanging out and I remember going to the DM gallery, which was owned by a friend of mine in Fulham Road. I mean, I was only 18, but there was, um, they were showing Richard Estes, a photorealist, um, American painter. And the gallery was all white, which was a, a very, very modern, which was quite unusual in the 60s for London. 
but I got there early for the opening party and, and it was very small. And the only other person in the room was John Lennon. Oh, right. Yeah. So, of course, I was completely, you know, spellbound and I couldn't utter a wow. word. So, and he's quite shy in those circumstances. He wasn't about to ask me any questions. <laughs> so, so we had this sort of standoff until a few more people came. Well, it was a nice experience. I mean, I slightly regret not actually saying anything like how great he was, you know, to him. But maybe that was the best way. I mean, did you speak to him? And... Not a word. Not a word. Not a word. Um, I just stood there and he stood there and it was almost like a performance because we both weren't going to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and there was no one else in the gallery and it's all white, apart from the, the painting. What was the first artwork that you ever bought? Well, it's unusual because um, I had a, a, a friend called Desmond Page who was a friend and a dealer. And my uncle had died and I, I inherited some a bit of money and I ended up buying a Richard Hamilton wow. painting nice. from Desmond and hung it in Yorkshire. And, you know, it was it was a swinging London. So it was Mick Jagger and Robert Fraser. Being arrested in the back of the car. Being arrested, yeah. And, of course, it, it meant something to me. It meant not a thing to my father who said, you know, he, he didn't actually say that because, first of all, he didn't really have a Yorkshire accent, but he, he, he almost, you can hear him saying, if you paid more than, you know, threepence for that, you'd be an ad, you know. <laughs> Do you still have it? No. It, it's amazing when nobody gets it around you. You start to doubt. And um, so I ended up selling it because I just, it just wasn't appreciated in Yorkshire. <laughs> How uh, it's, it's actually one of the iconic images of, of the swing sixties. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and and an important painting. And well, I mean, there was six of them done. I mean, it's not affordable now, but in in those days, it was. I was going to say I was going to try and sell it for you, but don't worry, <laughs> we, we can we can get into your collection further on. I want to talk about the your, the art and your practice. Uh, I know a lot of painters, and they talk about the emotional process of painting, continually solving problems. What is your thought process when you see a new site for the first time? It's very methodical. I mean, you go there and you try and record in your mind the weather, the local uh, architecture, the atmosphere, the the plants and so on. And, of course, you're usually there with a client the first time, regardless of what it is. And so you have to listen to them. In fact, you have, it's more important to listen to them, really, because you, <laughs> you can always go back to the site. But somehow your brain is able to take in a huge amount. The problem is, unless you write it down within 24 hours, in my case, it's, it's gone. Right. I mean, I can remember more than anyone else in the office. So if we all, if three of us go to site and we come back with the notes, mine's the most complete. Right. But I would say that. <laughs> you have to say that. <laughs> yes. Um, and your first projects were art-related, a flat for your first wife, art dealer, Hester Van Ryan, a studio for Michael Craig Martin, an office for Waddington Cousteau. With these spaces, I assume they're white spaces, uh, did these set the tone for your future projects? Not at all. I mean, we approach everything very methodically, as I said, and it's a practical thing. You, If you're designing galleries, you, you design them, uh, you know, white because it's the best neutral backdrop. I mean, you obviously have to give them some character, but... Mm. It's not that that appealed to us because they're white or anything like that. That it was just a, you know, an architectural form that we had to to deal with. You chose minimalism as your style in a period when artists like Robert Ryman, Carl Andre, and Donald Judd were around. Were they huge influences on you? Well, of course, yes. I mean, you know, they're all amazing artists. 
I mean, I didn't choose minimalism. I mean, it's a dangerous word because it's mostly used for an art movement, I think. Mm. I mean, that's what people normally um, react to if, you, if, you, if the word comes up. I mean, what we do, I suppose, could be termed as minimal, but it's also essential or it's, it's really just getting things right, you know, and not being able to subtract or add to whatever you've done. You know, it's just f trying to find the right point, you know, with the building or, or the interior or the object. And why do you think it's worked so well for you? Why do you think it's so popular still? I've no idea. Um, I, I've been doing this stuff for 40 years and I've sort of kept my head down and kept on working at it. And you hope at the end there is something, you know, to show. I mean, I've been very lucky. I think one of the reasons is that we've got an amazing team of people. I mean, it's, it's other buggers' efforts. You know, I mean, it's never truer than, than in our case. And I've had a huge support from, you know, my partners, life partners like Hester or, or Catherine. I mean, I wouldn't be anywhere without Catherine. Actually, I read, I've read a few interviews and uh, there's one, I won't, maybe not a quote, but you said, uh, give me a bench anytime. <laughs> <laughs> which I kind of like, which I should have actually opened that with, is Catherine, who I met, is she, you, do you share the same kind of aesthetic tastes or? Well, it's interesting because she, I mean, she's from South Africa and her parents had a, a very contemporary modern house, which was very sparsely furnished. So it was right up my street. When she came to London, she started working for Colfax and Fowler. You know, the original people that found it did very, very good quality work. I mean, there was pattern, but, but they did get as well to the essence of things. So I think Catherine, since, since we've been together, has probably moved more towards what I do. Not completely. <laughs> I mean, she still likes curtains um, and sofas. Any benches? <laughs> Where do you sit in the living room, on the bench, and she's on the sofa? Yeah, I, 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 I find benches comfortable. I mean, I like perching. I, I'm not sure why you need sofas, but um, when you've got a bed, at the last resort, you can always go to bed. <laughs> um, is it as obvious as people's lives being so cluttered, we accumulate so much, that actually just stripping everything away just makes you see things more clearly and live better? I think it helps. And so, yes. But I think most people are made, seem to be made up of two different kinds of people. You know, there's one part of you that likes to accumulate things. I mean, not in my case, but most people like to accumulate things or, or enjoy having nice things mm. at some point. And there's also that thing in them that wants to spring clean and get rid of the clutter. Yeah. It's sort of an ongoing battle, I think, for people. I mean, I genuinely really don't like stuff. I mean, I like to have the right tools or all the things to, you know, it's not a hair shirt mentality, but I mean, I like to have the right things for the job and, you know, and I like nice furniture, but I don't like to have anything you don't really need. Absolutely, yeah. But of course, you know, it's, it's difficult to avoid. I follow your uh, photography Instagram account and uh, the pictures are splendid. And you've published a couple of books with your <clears throat> longstanding publisher, Fiden, the most recent Spectrum, and then previous to that, a visual inventory. Tell me about your photography. I've been taking snapshots for, I suppose, 40 years. I mean, it, it, I think I started probably seriously taking photographs when I lived in Japan for four years in the 70s. And it, it was a way of, of documenting because I can't sketch. I mean, I, I can sketch, I mean, the, but very naively. 
and they're not much use as a descriptive form. So I developed, you know, I just took hundreds of thousands of photographs over the years. And um, it's been my way of... It's, it's also a sort of therapeutic because you worry that there's a moment that you can't capture. So you at least you go through the process of trying to capture it with a photograph. And this is a period where taking a photo actually needed technical ability, not just now with our iPhones. You have to, you can just point and shoot and everything's sorted. I actually want to touch upon something which I thought was pretty astonishing was, I think it was at the Shade of Pearl exhibition. You exhibited 320 pictures and someone bought the whole set? <laughs> yes. Talk me through that. Was it a friend? Was it a, a client? Or was it just someone who walked in? Well, um, Carrie Scott, um, who's uh, a curator saw the book uh, Spectrum that we'd done and thought it would make a very good exhibition. I'd never thought of making prints out of the photographs. You know? So if we decided that we'd, we'd hang all 320 photographs, which is quite a feat. Yeah. And you could sort of walk through them, yeah. which was an installation in itself. And I wasn't, I don't sort of really think about, you know, photography as an income or as a, I mean, obviously with houses you have to be paid otherwise you can't run the office but I didn't think of it this way and but of course you know she's convinced I'm a photographer and uh, she found a collector who bought the whole 320 framed can I meet her (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm just looking at your book the cover I love uh, the cover of your spectrum book Um, is that actually one of your pictures or was that just kind of no, designed for the cover? It, it's Nick developed it, who who works in the office, and he designed the book. And it's graded from white through graduation from white through to black. And oh, so, I the, see. so the cover represents um, running through the spectrum, spectrum of uh, rainbow. It, it's beautifully, beautifully, beautifully put together. Well, I think if if you do work with Hyden, the publisher, as closely as we do, and you're able to collaborate. And um, I think there's so so many bits to a book. You know, it's like, you know, for us, it's like doing a building. It's very complicated. Yeah, but I, 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 in my experience, I've not having been published, but also if you get the cover right and the typography right, it brings everyone in, and people want to open it. You know, it makes such a difference. So John Paulson's Spectrum, I highly recommend going to, to see it. Uh, and then we'll talk about Making Life Simpler. Actually, we can talk about Making Life Simpler now, your latest book. Tell me about it. It's a biography written by Dan Sijic about uh, my professional side and my upbringing and, and uh, my family life. Obviously, it's heavily illustrated, um, but there are about 60,000 words, I think. And I've just opened it to the Mies van der Rohe's uh, Farnsworth House, which I believe is one of your top three favourite buildings ever. Definitely. I think, I think, yeah, I mean... It's you absolutely love it, don't very, you? very, very hard to beat. It's absolutely the definition of minimum because you just couldn't add or subtract anything from it. It's, it's perfection. Have you been inside it? I have. I spent, I've, I've spent time there. I thought it was very funny because I finally got there. You know, it's like a pilgrimage. And it uh, took me years and years, and I got there, and and the very nice girl, American girl, who opened it up for us, because in those days it belonged to Peter Palumbo. But being nervous and American and everything else, she she didn't stop talking. And it was my first time ever to go inside. 
So you were excited as well? Oh, I was very overexcited, <laughs> but, but the, my, my way of dealing with it wasn't to talk. And so I, I came up with this ruse, so I said that we should all have a, a minute's silence for Mies. And she said, oh, yes, yes, yes. And then, we, and then of course, she was very competitive, <laughs> so she managed to, to, um, to beat even me because she stayed quiet for ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I almost feel that you have to be quiet when you visit a house like that. I There's want to bring, a lot to take in. I can imagine. I want to bring it back to the art. I read you have a Picasso in your collection. Uh, what art do you collect and what does art do for you? Well, I'm not a collector. I, 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 to be honest, I don't, I, as I've said before, I don't like stuff. And it, owning art is a responsibility. And of course, the best place to you know, look at a picture is on a wall. But I like the walls where I am, you know, to be free because I think it, it changes very much the space. So we have a few minimal pieces, but mostly three-dimensional. Right. So they don't have to go, well, they do go on the walls. But I'm very happy to look at art. I think, it's, of course, it's essential for life to have art. We can't exist as a species without art, you know, culturally. It's incredibly important, but I, I prefer to look at things, you know, in in museums or in other people's places or the excuse about having them is that they're for the children but of course first of all my children have grown up and and they've got their own places and they still haven't asked for them and of course it's a different generation so i'll have them yeah (laughs) (laughs) i want to move on to your uh buildings and uh your uh, amazing career was meeting and being hired by Calvin Klein your big break? And I just want to add something to this because I've heard that you, or I read that sometimes your staff or people would kind of prank call saying that someone wanted a huge building in the middle of the desert and then Calvin Klein called and you thought it was a joke and actually he was outside your office and then you, he commissioned you and that opened every door. I mean, what was that whole experience like? Can you recount it? Well, that, well, that, I mean, that, that, that is what happened. I mean, it was a... I mean, it's difficult to imagine now, but Calvin Klein was the most well-known person. You yeah, know? I mean, it's I mean, uh, still huge in fashion. It's still massive. Yeah, absolutely massive. So, so he was sort of like an iconic figure, and to have him suddenly bound into the office was was um, quite a thing. And if obviously, you know, he was looking to find a young architect who could visualize his ideas, and it wasn't at all given that he would choose me. I mean, I was obviously hoping. And so that was quite a stressful time until he, until he made his mind up. Um, but ever, ever since, you know, doing his stores and, and his home and, I mean, the endorsement of, of him and also learning from him, I mean, it's changed not just my career, but my life. I mean, it's, yeah. he's, I mean he is responsible virtually for everything. Because you said he was a very strong character as well. Did he know what he wanted? Of course. Any of those guys yeah. are, they're a different breed. And he, he was introduced by Ian Schrager, who took another 10 years to understand what I did. <laughs> who, as I mentioned in the introduction, you did his homes or his clubs or both? Ian. Or his, ho- or his hotels? The first thing he got me to do, it was to try me. He, he got me to do the apartments um, at the Gram- next door to the Gramercy Hotel in New York. And then finally the, uh, the sort of seal of approval was when he, he chose me to do his apartment. Because that, I mean, that's very personal. Yeah, absolutely. And Herzog and de Muron had done the building. 
So they would have done a beautiful job on his apartment. Yeah. And you mentioned the Gramercy uh, Hotel. I once had an amazing date there. Is it owned by Abby Rosen? It Hence was, was, yes. Yeah. And Abby and, and, um, and Ian were partners on, on the hotel at the time. I can't remember which bar it was, but I, you went in and... The Rose Bar. Probably. It must be, with yeah. all the Warhols. Yeah. It and was just Picasso's an ex- and everything. It was yeah. just an extraordinary experience. And they were all original. They were all from Abby's collection. Who you also, uh, you designed his hotels. Yes, I did. Well, I designed the hotel in, um, in Jaffa for him. Wow. Yeah. Um, he walked past me at Claridge's and kind of our eyes locked and he, he didn't come to the gallery, but he kind of waved at me and just kind of knowing I knew who he was. Yeah. Um, and, He's a very uh, nice guy. And that was Charming, it. Charming, yeah. You've designed such a variety of buildings in so many different countries. I know you're off to the Philippines next week. Do you feed off the different cultures and are they very influential in your process? Well, historically, clearly uh, they are. Because, but, but I mean, you know, I travelled, you know, from leaving school at 17. You know, I spent a lot of time in India and Afghanistan and, and, and nearly a year, over a year, and then later on, four years in Japan. So that whole thing before I even started, you know, building. So that that whole background. And of course, I mean, now I travel, but I mean, of course, the the influence um, had the effect very early on. But now, so when you go to the Philippines on this this big project you've been working yeah. on, will the interiors be very different because you're in the Philippines, or is it just your style that you're imposing and designing? Well, of course, you're, you're, you're influenced by so many different things and the location is clearly the most important and it's a tropical climate and there are all sorts of things, you know, like um, you know, very sophisticated shutters and screens and, mm. you know, because of the sun. You know, it's very, very different from the northern hemisphere where you're trying to bring the sun in in the Philippines you're trying to control it yeah I'm going to get this wrong but uh, please correct me I read that the Abbey of Anuri Duvu in uh, Bohemia not bad not bad <laughs> thanks I mean I, I'm not Czech so <laughs> <laughs> is your greatest building um, would you agree and is it based on L'Abbé de Chorone which I've visited many times growing up well, the, the Abbey of Novi Dever is, is a project of a lifetime because it's a whole monastic city. Architects don't get that, usually. I mean, you don't get to do a contemporary monastery every day. It's astonishing. I looked at many pictures. Yeah. It's astonishing. So it's, it's, it's everything. It's, and and they, never, they don't leave the compound, really. Yeah. So it has to be a very special place for them to live. And I mean, the reason I say it's a project of a lifetime is because it's it's sort of unique and it's so extensive. I mean, all, all the projects we do, I'm I'm proud of, but that's kind of the most complicated and, yeah. and the most unusual, I think. And is this is this true? I've, I've listened to a lot of different podcasts after I met you. The monks of the Abbey had seen the advert in Calvin Klein. Uh, oh, sorry, we were looking at a magazine and saw a Calvin Klein advert and then got in touch with you because of that? Or was there a connection somehow? No, what they said, the monks said, was we saw the Calvin Klein store, so we'd like you to do our monastery. <laughs> because it's English and it's not precise, the language. I presume they'd been there because I, I, at that point I didn't realise that Cistercian 
Trappist monks don't travel. Mm. And uh, they'd seen a photograph of the shop in minimum. And it was a picture of two tables from above. And it looked as if those could have been altars. Because, you know, I mean, a, a, an altar is a table. Yeah, of course. But it was just the way they said it. <laughs> and, you know, they, they were French. So, you know, you know we saw the Kelvin Klein's door. You know, it was just sort of... I want to talk about the Design Museum. And uh, before I ask my question, I also want to say, I think when I first mentioned, I have been to one of the best exhibitions I've ever been to, the Charlotte Perillon. Uh, I think I went back three times, in fact. Um, I just saw the way it was laid out, the exhibition space. It was just, it's always on my mind. Did you feel extra pressure when you were asked to design the Design Museum? And the reason I ask that is because it's in London, it's so visible, which all your buildings are, you know, just off High Street, Ken. Did you feel extra pressure? Oh, certainly extra pressure to to do the Design Museum. Well, first of all, it was a competition, which I don't normally do. And Dan Sujic is a close personal friend. So that was a pressure. But he, he said, you've got to enter the competition. And it was an international competition, and there were 100 really good architects. And they got it down to shortlist, and then it got down to two with um, David Chipperfield and I. And it was, it was really hard going, and I was determined to do absolutely the best as possible because, you know, because it was Diane and a friend, and, and you just didn't want it... And, of course, he was, he's very scrupulous about... So, of course, during the period, we, we had much less contact than we do normally. So that, that, was, a bit, you know, that was a bit of a pity, because I didn't see as much of him. And, uh, and of course, the, the, the eventual choice was not made by him anyway, so... Um, and now you're even better friends. Yes. Well... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're lifetime friends. But it's interesting when it opened, I'd not really done a proper public building before, and so, and especially in England, um, where everyone feels they can be very critical, and the comments were—I wouldn't say hilarious, but they were um, very varied and different. I mean, there were, you know, all sorts of different. People said that the atrium is too high, too low, too big, too wide, too small, too everything. Or, you know, everything, everyone had a thing to say about. But, you know, we ended up with a thousand, a million visitors. Yeah. In just over a year. So, I mean, it was, it's been a huge success. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with criticism? Well, I just think how incredibly lucky we are, architects, because we're not politicians. I mean, like the, the stuff that. I know. I, I mean, how do you survive? Yeah, I think exactly the same thing. <laughs> and you know that thing of never never read below the line? You know, if you read Dezine or one of these design magazines, yeah. that you read below the line is... It's, it's hurtful. And... It's, well, it's bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> um, why do you think, John, you've been so successful? And what are the key ingredients to your success? I think... Yeah, people. People's the biggest thing. I mean, having, as I said before, having, you know, life partners who have been incredibly influential on my my work and life and help and, and then friends and, and of course, the team. I mean, architecture is, is teamwork. Mm. I mean, my name gets is on the door and my, my name gets on the article, but, you know, there are 20 more talented, driven people out there in the studio. 
I mean, I, I've just brought it all together. I remember very early on, I was, they, they asked me to give a lecture at the RIBA, which was called Young Turks. And I turned up and um, the central hall was just thronged with people. I mean, incredible atmosphere. And I was so nervous, I think, must, I can only think that's why. I wondered who on earth are all these people here for? What's going on tonight? And of course it was my lecture. You know, I just couldn't compute the two. I didn't think, you know, obviously that all these people are here, you know. And I still find it difficult to believe that it's what's in the book or what's out there or is, you know, is due to me. It's sort of an odd. Because I, I find it amazing um, and actually rather inspirational that you went, you know, you worked for your father's textile business, then you went to Japan, which is kind of quite far away land from Halifax. A lot. I mean, very, okay, the furthest, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, for, then came back, studied, left the course early, and then you were so successful. It's obviously built in you and you have this, you had an architectural brain from a very early age, um, but you started quite late in your 30s i believe was it just incredible drive a bit of impatience great connections i think it's a bit of all those things but i think the thing that i didn't have early on was i because i didn't have something that really interested me i had no drive mm. and i had no ambition i mean i enjoyed life and i had fun and partied and you know generally misbehaved but I didn't have something that I could really latch on to. So when I finally got a thing that I enjoyed doing and had some facility for, which was architecture, I was able to channel that drive, which I didn't know I had, um, into it. I mean, my father was a hugely successful businessman who thought, you know, everyone could be a businessman. And it, he expected me to be, and I, and I wasn't. And, and I took quite a long time to realise. But I suppose setting up your own business is entrepreneurial, so you got those skills from him to a certain A lot extent. of skills from him. And interestingly, my son, Caius, actually, and my son, Ben, uh, both both got it. You know, both One has got a record label. A record yeah, Caius has a record label called Young, and Ben manages TikTok artists. And Phoebe, my daughter, uh, curates the Manchester Arts Festival. So they're, they're oh, wow. all doing stuff. But it's interesting because, you know, the, it's um, clogs to riches to clogs in three generations is the normal, you know, Yorkshire saying or Lancashire saying. Clogs to riches to... Clogs. <laughs> so, in other words, clogs, you don't have any money and then you make, you make a lot of money or you make money or you're successful and then your, your, your um, child has a success and your grandson gets rid of it all or your granddaughter or whatever. But it's, it's rags to riches in three generations. Okay, so nothing to do with the Dutch shoe? Yes, well, because people in the factories wore clogs. Oh, I in, see, in, okay, in, so in the connection. Not, not just the Dutch. Um, what's well, the you, you know nothing, mate. <laughs> <laughs> they wear clogs in Japan, what? Uh, um, no, they do as well. They're, they're called well, that get, was getter, in... I think. Um, what's the most significant architectural advice you've ever received? Well, the thing that had the most impact was that Shiro Kuramata said, go and do it yourself. Because you were hanging around his office. Yeah, with... being a pest. Right. If, if the truth be told, yeah. I mean, he, he was playing safe because he didn't know. 
you know, he couldn't understand who I was or what I was. Or I mean, I was just this 24-year-old asking him questions. But he thought maybe, maybe I could be something. And he wasn't... So. Yeah, he saw something in you. Yeah. Um, well, I think, yeah. It leads me on to the next question, actually. Um, who were are your mentors? Obviously, he, he's been a huge influence. And when I was at the AA, even though it's very, very briefly, John Andrews and uh, Crispin Osborne and my ex-partner, Claudia Silvestrin, they all had an enormous impact on me. I mean, that's 40 years ago. but, mm. but um, And, of course, you know, as I said before, Hester and Catherine and, and Dan and the team, or it's everyone's... Everyone. You know, you, you very quickly kind of lose the idea of heroes. You know, they don't, you know, everyone's human. Mm. I mean, I never met Mies van der Rohe, but he, I mean, I met Judd. I mean, Judd clearly was, I mean, if he didn't mentor me, but I studied, I studied him, yeah, absolutely. And, and I met him because he, Hester was his dealer in Europe. What are the principles mm. uh, you always stick to, whatever the situation Never give up. Nice. Hard, logical, painstaking work, really, in designing. There's no magic like, I mean, Kuramata used to say, no sparks, assuming that he did get sparks because he was influenced by his dreams and things like that. But for us, it's you, you, you tend to start with a blank piece of paper and take it from there. I mean, it's always a clean slate. But it's a logical process. It's not... You're not sitting there waiting for, you know, you just have to grind away a bit. But you're always looking for that idea. And until you've got it, you can't. It used to be that all architects designed a chair. Now architects <laughs> design almost anything. Uh, and in, That's in, not quite true. Um, in, and this is a serious question. Do you sometimes see yourself as a lifestyle brand? Good Lord, no. I, I mean, uh, hopefully but you've done not. You've made steak knives, um... Yes, because, uh, actually, I don't eat meat, but um, they're quite useful for other things. But other people need them. I only design things that, that, that you need, you know, and you need shelter, so you need a building and you need stuff to go in it and, you know, interior, and you need things. And the reason I think I, I even though, obviously, the things we design already exist, um, for the most part, it's quite nice to design new saucepans or new coffee cups or new furniture or interiors because however good a chair is or a design is, over the years it becomes so well-known it almost becomes a cliché. Mm. So you're affected when you walk into a space. So, for example, it is, it's very hard to beat a volar tap or spout and you immediately recognise it. So in your, he- in your head, you're thinking Vola or Gaganau oven. Or I try and avoid anything recognisable in the spaces just so that it's very fresh and, and the, the space isn't, your brain isn't, doesn't, isn't triggered to think on that line. I have a lot of uh, young gallerists and artists and a few young architects who will be listening to this. What advice would you give to young architects starting out? I think for young architects, starting out is is find an area that you enjoy, because it's so broad. I mean, of course, you want to practice architecture, but that doesn't necessarily mean building. I mean, you can teach, you can study, you can um, 
do all sorts of things, and it's a fantastic grounding. The most important thing is to enjoy what you're doing. Mm. So if you don't, you're not going to be any good. Yeah. And you don't have to be... You can just enjoy it. It doesn't. Ha- you don't have to... Um, I mean, I, of course, I sort of privileged, but I just started out with, with no ambition and no goal. But I just was doing something that I actually enjoyed doing. Mm. And I could have just gone on doing that, I guess, you know, forever, except I, I might have had to make some money. Um, <clears throat> but luckily, um, you know, one's partner could give you a bit of support. And my final question, which I ask every guest... Um, which artist, living or dead, would you commission to do your portrait? <laughs> well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't commission a portrait. I mean, I just. I mean, of course, I. I have my photograph taken to do with the work, and it's it's a sort of, it's a kind of promotion that my father never understood. I mean, he thought it was absolutely not done, to have a photograph of yourself published. Really, really yeah. I mean, I got into the Beirut Times when I was 17 because I was travelling around the world and I sent it to him very proudly. It was my first published picture of myself. And he thought I was appalling. Really? Yes, it was Different just times. self but One of your portraits, there's a portrait of you in the National Gallery, is that right? So National Portrait Gallery? Yeah, but they're all done for specific, you know, it's a job. But there must be one artist, living or dead. Well, for, uh, Robert Maplethorpe did take my portrait. And I thought, wow! I thought yeah, exactly. I thought, wow! Here we go. F- you know, f- I'm going to be like one of those amazing. Just slip that one in. I like that. Male, <laughs> male, male nudes. You know, sort of. Um, Were you in full bondage leather as well? I could. Yes, I could. No, I'm, I'm, unfortunately, it was very, very uh, tame, and I was sitting on the floor cross-legged, and um, and it was in colour, so it was like everything was counted. In. Anyway, it didn't work. Okay, so you've been photographed by Robert Maplethorpe. That's pretty impressive. So that rounds it up. And I just want to say that was wonderful. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you sitting down and taking time. Well, it's always good to talk about yourself. (laughs) 